0: Of you, why don't you grab a copy of God's word? We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts. So, Acts in the New Testament. If you've got one of the Bibles that we provide, that'll be on page 910. 910. My name is John Chasteen. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it's just a joy and honor to be with you today. I love Caleb's prayer that God would melt any ice or snow. In our hearts. You see, we're going to look at a passage today um, with our sermon titled Cut to the Heart, where Peter actually preaches a sermon. They were cut to the heart, and we see a great move and response of people to God. So, man, look forward to jumping into the text with us. Hey, if you're new with us today, let me just give you a heads up. One of the things after the sermon today, um, I'm going to be leading something called Next. And so if you're new or you're wondering what would be a next step at Redemption Hill, I'd love for you to, to hang around after the service. It'll be a free lunch downstairs. We'll have people in the lobby pointing you in the right direction. Well, as we look at our text today, let me give you a heads up on where we're headed. The sermon that I'm actually about to share with you was preached 2,000 years ago. My goal today is not to mess it up. Really, Peter preached this sermon at Pentecost 3,000 people got saved. Now, don't hold it against me if, you know, don't, don't measure my preaching, you know, up with, up with Peter's. There was a special work going on of the Spirit. But here's what I am praying for today I'm praying that there might at least be one person, like we see respond here in Acts 2, that steps into eternal life today. Could this be the day? that you respond and your eternity is forever changed. So let's, let's see here in Acts 2 what Peter, um, what he does and where we're heading after today. So what I want you to see off the bat before we jump in and read, Peter actually covers four texts in the Old Testament. He, he looks at a passage in Joel. He looks at two explicit passages in the Psalms. He alludes to one other. So here's the deal. My, my, what I'm doing today, I'm actually preaching about, I'm preaching over five texts. I'm covering Acts, and then I'm covering all of these texts here for you. So just know that, hey, you're getting a five-for-one bonus today. We got five sermons. We're going to throw it into one. The other thing that we see when we look at um with what, Peter was doing is it doesn't tell us like what time limit he had for this sermon. Um, what we do see is we see a great response. Here's the deal. I do have a time limit. I've got roughly 40 minutes to go through this sermon. And so he, here's where we're after today. There, just like put your seatbelt on, get ready to learn. My goal is to walk through this text. We're going to explain it, and then we're going to say, all right, God, what does it look like for each of us to respond to what you were doing in your word. You guys ready? All right, let's go. Let's jump in. Last week, Tanner covered Pentecost. Acts chapter two, the very beginning. Jesus, who had just spent time with his disciples, he said, you wait here. The Father's gonna send the Spirit. But, and then you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but you wait until the Father sends the Spirit. And Acts 2, 1, we start seeing they're together in the upper room, about 120 of them. They're praying, they're seeking God, and the Spirit of God is just poured out. And it says, and it rested on them like tongues, and they began to speak in languages, different languages as tongues. They were speaking the mighty works of God as we continue on in acts 2 verse 5 it says now as they were speaking these tongues and the mighty works of god there were people scattered had come to jerusalem as far away as rome and what they're doing is they're hearing in their own languages the mighty works of god being proclaimed through this the, the pouring out of the spirit on this 120 like miraculous This doesn't just happen. This can only be explained through the work of the Spirit of God. They're speaking, somebody else in a different language is hearing it in their own language. And so there are many in the crowd, and you see their response here in Acts chapter 2, verse 12. And it says, And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the launching point for Peter's sermon. We see this in verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says, but Peter, standing with the 11 apostles, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. In other words, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm going to explain what's going on here. And what I tell you may forever change your life. He says this in verse 15. These people are not drunk as you suppose. As you assume based on their actions. Here's why. Point number one. It's, it's only the third hour of the day. What time was it? It was 9 a.m. You look in your Bible, it gives you a little footnote. Hey, that was it was 9 a.m. They're not drunk. Peter says there is a better explanation. He continues on in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Here's what's going on. Peter's First argument to explain what this, this miraculous scene that was going on, he says this the Old Testament promised the pouring out of the Spirit, that which you witness this day. And what he does through, in, in Acts 2 17, all the way through verse 21, he goes back and he reads from the prophet Joel. Joel was a prophet in the Old Testament, he was one of the minor prophets. And and usually the message of the prophets went like this. You've sinned, you've rebelled against God, and as a result, there's judgment coming. And judgment would have come in various different forms. The ultimate judgment on Israel in the Old Testament was the exile. They were actually kicked out of the promised land. But in all of these prophets, even as they were looking upon the judgment that was happening, they were looking beyond and offering a hope of something that God was going to do in the days to come. That's what makes Joel relevant for us today. And that's why Peter uses this as the first text in his sermon here at Pentecost. Let's read what he says here in Acts 17. This is is almost just a word-for-word quote from Joel 2, verses 28 and 32. He says this, And I will show wonders in the heavens, above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And then he concludes with this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be. Saved. Here's what I want to do. I want to unpack why Peter gives us this text. He actually just reads it. What, what we're given here by Luke is just the text from Joel. And there's really very little explanation. Peter doesn't offer us the commentary. So I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a commentary on what was going on here in the text and why, why Peter chose this text from Joel. First of all, we see in Acts 2:17, it starts with this. And in the last days, when you study the Old Testament, you see this reference, as I told you, the prophets, they looked forward to something that was called the last days. It was a time down the road where God and all of his promises would be completed and they would be fulfilled. Here's what Peter's doing. He's saying, what you see happening today, the last days have started. They have begun. The last days are upon us. In fact, the clock is ticking. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see, there are a couple of key texts in the Old Testament that, that this Joel prophecy was even connected with. That this promise that God would, would pour out his spirit. One of those is if you want to do some homework this week, go read Ezekiel chapters 34 through 37. You're going to see a parallel, another prophet who's looking forward to the days to come where God was going to pour out his spirit. Another one is Jeremiah chapter 31. You can look at verses 31 through 33. There he doesn't explicitly mention the Spirit, but he talks about this new covenant, and he talks about he's going to put his law, and he's going to write it on their hearts. There's something in our hearts that God is going to do. Another one is Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. Why do I mention all of that? This wasn't just some isolated text. That Peter goes to. As you look at the prophets, you see many of them looking forward to these last days and and one of the promises was that God would do a new work in relation to the Holy Spirit. Joel says that God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And what's unique about what's happening in Acts 2 and what was promised in Joel 2 is that this distribution of the Spirit crosses all boundaries you see that look at the text here in acts quoting joel what's he say your sons and your daughters shall prophesy what boundary is it crossing male or female all genders you see this work of the spirit that it's going to move and you know what who is here in acts 2 is it just male no, they were women. Go back to chapter one, and you'll see um, with the men there and the apostles, you have um, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're there. See, so, like uh, among this crowd of 120 where the Spirit of God's being poured out and they're speaking in tongues, there's women who are prophesying. And, and what Peter does, he sees in this text the relationship between prophesy and speaking in tongues, and that's the connection. He says, what you hear, the speaking in tongues, they're proclaiming, they're prophesying the mighty works of God. That's what Joel spoke of. And so the boundary of the pouring out of the Spirit, it crosses all genders. It also crosses all ages and generations. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. It crosses all gender. It crosses all ages, and it crosses all social classes. Look at this next statement. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Even the lowest of classes will experience the blessing of the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Look, you may be here today and you may think you're a nobody. You, you may say, I'm overlooked at work, I'm overlooked in my home, I'm overlooked in my city, but when it comes about the work of God, there is nobody that is outside of the work of God. Amen? And look around today, we see evidence of this in our church today. And that. What what drives us as a church to be the thumbprint of Medford is because that is the heart of the gospel and the heart of God. He will pour out his spirit on all flesh. It crosses all boundaries. But then we see Joel, his his promise here explains what's going to happen when the spirit is poured out. First of all, we see there's going to be Prophecy. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. As I've already mentioned, this is the connection between the speaking in tongues and the prophecy. They're going to see, your young men are going to see visions. Your old men are going to dream dreams. Hey, just keep hanging on with us through the book of Acts, because you know what's about to happen in the chapters ahead? We're going to see some dreams, and we're going to see some visions. So what's this tell us? When Peter is quoting this from Joel, he's not quoting it and saying, everything here just became fulfilled. He's saying, this is the starting point. The last days are inaugurated, and some of these we are going to see fulfilled in the days ahead. You guys with me? Specifically, I would say that's what he's referring to in verses 19 and 20, when he talks about the wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, the blood, the fire, the vapor, the sun, the moon. Most likely these were still future to Peter's point of view and Luke's point of view even as he's writing this for us. And I would say for the most of us here, these are probably future even from our perspective. You could go read through the book of Revelation and and when it talks about the day of the Lord, like we're in the last days, but we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. There in the days ahead, some descriptions in Revelation that match this blood, this fire, this vapor of smoke. So I would just say those verses were included here, and, but we're not the primary focus for Peter. He doesn't explain them for us, but, but this is part of the reason why he continues the quote from Joel. Look at verse 21. This quote from Joel ends with this, and it shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You guys probably read, you may read it like, like, duh, like this is what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. Like anybody, everyone who calls on. But let me just highlight something for you that was significant for Peter and would have just jumped off the page here for the early readers. In the Old Testament, who was the Lord? Yahweh, Jehovah, in many of your English translations, when you read the Old testament, what do you how is that Lord spelled? It's all caps. For a Jew, they would not even pronounce it it was a name that was to be unpronounceable because it was held in such high regard and revere. Who was the Lord? This would have been the God of Israel. This wasn't just a like you choose your God, an unknown God. This was the unique God of Israel. This was the God who said to Moses, I am. That's that God. It's, it's the God who Moses went up on Mount Sinai and like the glory of God. It, it's that particular God. What's Peter doing? Peter chooses this text from Joel because initially it explains what's going on with the speaking of tongues. But as we're going to see by the end of this sermon, his main point is this. Salvation is available to everyone who responds to Jesus, the promise Christ and Lord. Who is Lord. Peter's going to spend the rest of his time saying, that Lord that you read about in the Old Testament is Jesus. That blew their minds. So let's continue. We see The first explanation of what's going on, the Old Testament promised and it spoke of this pouring out of the Spirit. This next section in Peter's sermon we're going to see is this. This new day is ushered in by Jesus, the promised Christ and Lord. He's now going to just shift. And his whole point here is to tell us who is this Lord of Joel 2. 32. And so let's go back to the text and let's keep reading. In Acts 2 verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus is Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter doesn't give us an explanation of Joel, but he turns directly to Jesus. And here's the deal without Christ, we have no Christianity. Guys, at, at the heart and at the central of what we're about is, is Jesus. Which means in all of our sermons, we better get to Jesus. And as you think of your life, it ought to be centered on Jesus. Like He is the driving point. He is the Lord. He is the King. He's the supreme treasure. He's what it's about. So Peter gives us, and he walks through the life the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and he explains a, th- a few things for us. First of all is this, he says, Jesus' life demonstrates the power and presence of God. H- how are you going to argue that this Jesus is the Lord? Well, look at his life. What else would you say about him? He says this, he, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, mighty works, Wonders, signs God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. They would have all been there. Look, this is just, you know, a month or so after the death of Christ. All these people would have known this is the Jesus who healed the blind, the lame, raised the dead, turned the water into the wine, the feeding of the 5,000. Yes, like there was no question there was something special about who Jesus is. Peter is saying, that Jesus, the reason he did all these things, it's telling us about who he is. It's telling us about his identity. Jesus is this Lord. Second, he goes on to his death. In other words, okay, if you're going to convince me that Jesus is Lord, this death seems to be like a problem. He says, no, it's not. Look at what he says, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Hey guys, you hear me? This Jesus that was just killed, that was no accident. In fact, it was the definite, predetermined plan of God. Now, this is what will just blow your mind. God, who hates death, sent his son to die. But in the very next phrase, who's guilty of his death? You. This Jesus delivered up according to the plan of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If you jump forward a page to chapter 4, he gives us specifically who he's talking about. In chapter 4, verse 27, he says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, who were guilty for his death, The Israelites, the Jews who said, crucify him, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and all the Gentiles who carried it out. But get this, I'll give you a little theology today because this is a key text for us thinking about the the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we affirm at Redemption Hill God is completely sovereign. Actually, let me just read it from our statement of faith. I've got it up here. When, in our statement of faith on providence, it says this. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Pause. He is completely sovereign. You guys see that? But yet, so as not in any way to be the author or approval of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. God is completely sovereign. Who killed Jesus? Human responsibility. This is what we would call a compatibilist approach between the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. And if you think, think about it long enough, it'll just blow your mind. In other words, there is some mystery here, but here's the point. Scripture clearly affirms both. And so that's what we want to do. Actually, you'll see it affirmed multiple times as we continue reading through the book of Acts. So we see Jesus' death was about the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The third thing Peter highlights is his resurrection. Verse 24, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What does loosing the pangs of death? death means? It basically means he's putting an end to the agony of death. There, there's language here similar to that of childbirth. One commentator even notes this. It says, "The abyss." can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Jesus could not be held by the strings of death because of the power, the promise, and the purpose of God. In other words, the resurrection displays God's power over death Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. The one thing that as we follow him, we will also taste one day. He is the great hope of eternal life because he is alive. And it's the resurrection that completely changed everything for these apostles. I'll come back to that point here in a second. So we've gone from Joel 2 to ending with this Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and then Peter launching into, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection. Now here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna give us two explicit Old Testament passages and one strong allusion to give give confidence of what he's teaching us about. The first one is this. It's Psalm 16, verses eight through 11. He starts in verse 25. And in verse 25, he says, for David says concerning him, that he's now going to the Old Testament. And here's the cool part, guys. This is why I love this. He wasn't preaching from the same bu- He didn't have half of the Bible that I've got. He didn't have the New Testament. The spirit of prophecy was actually forming it. What was his Bible? When you hear this, the scriptures, it was the Old Testament. He's standing there with the Old Testament trying to convince them about Jesus. And so that's what he's doing. He's just going to go and say, all right, let's go through the Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you that the Old Testament is not like plan A, it failed, and now New Testament plan B. It's plan A, and it's preparing us for what we're experiencing right here. And so Psalm 16, he starts. We see here it being read in Acts uh, 2.25. I saw the Lord, this is David. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now let me pause here for a second. The good news about this one, is Peter does give us a little bit of explanation on the back end. I'll look at his explanation in a second, but I just want to highlight. So this would have been a Psalm of David. I mean, there's a lot of good here. I love Psalm 16. We actually preached through it just this past year as we did a series through the Psalms. It talks about the presence of God and its work in our lives. What does the presence of God do? It gives us confidence. It gives us a heart that is glad. It helps us to rejoice. But what Peter latches on to is what we see here in verses 20, in verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul. Imagine David. David's crying out, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades was the um, is, is the Greek equivalent of Sheol. Now it could sometimes refer to hell, but, but in this instance and in most instances, it just re- referred to the general place of the dead. So he's not saying you, you're going to abandon my soul to hell. It's just like like when you die, the place of the dead, like the, that's what he's referring to. Peter sees in that, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. This Holy One here is singular. He's not saying, in all holy people, Peter's looking at this and he says, David's, David's talking about a person, a holy one, whom there will be no corruption. And so let's look at his explanation now in verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, about the forefather David, he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. How, Psalm, how, how did God fulfill Psalm 16 to David? He died. He was put in the ground. Hey, and by the way, you can go, like, go check out his grave. It's still with us today. You know? He hasn't risen from the dead. There's his grave. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had swore with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Wow. There's an allusion here to Psalm 132. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to step back and then I'll tie it all together. In verse 30, it says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had swore with an oath. When did God swear with an oath to David? Well, Psalm 132, verses 11 through 12, says this, The Lord swore, hey look, there's the language, to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And this, was the, this is what was, was sworn to him. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. What was the promise made to David? We refer to this as the Davidic covenant. The other background is you can go read 1 Chronicles 17 or 2 Samuel 17 chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. It's this promise that God says to David, there's going to be a descendant, one of your offspring, and he is going to reign on your throne forever. So get this. David knowing that God was already promising things way down the road. Peter says, here's what's going on in this psalm. David's not talking about himself. David's looking To the David to come. Jesus, son of David. He's looking to that one. There was going to be a holy one that God would provide, and that person would not taste decay or corruption. All right, let me tie a few things together now. In verse 31, it says, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of, what's the word there? Christ. Very, verse, very first time in the book of Acts, this word shows up. You guys get so comfortable. Hey, Jesus Christ, it's like his last name, right? What do you know about this word Christ? I told you to get ready. Like, this is like, we're, we're learning today. This is, like, and I'm helping explain because the Jews there who would have known the Old Testament and like, think, like light bulbs or going off when when he's going through this. They would have known Christ. Another translation would be either the Messiah or the anointed one. This is what the Old Testament spoke of. You could go to Psalms 1 and 2. It talks about this anointed one, this promised one. We could read through the prophets. It's looking forward. God is going to send his Messiah. What does Peter now say? Peter says when David's writing this psalm, he's looking forward to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the resurrection of the Christ. David died and his tomb is still with us. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is alive. verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up. Hey guys, you can go check out David's tomb, but you know what you're going to find if you go to Jesus' tomb? It's empty. The Holy One did not see corruption. He is alive. Now, let's just pause here for a second. Who's preaching this sermon? Well, spirits were uh, yes, spirits being poured out and is working through Peter. Peter, what was Peter doing roughly 50 days ago? At Jesus, I don't know who Jesus is. I'm not one of his followers. What changed? How do you explain Peter now? Know this for certain. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised up. It was the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything for him and those early disciples. Guys, and if Jesus is alive, this changes everything for you and I too. So here's a summary of the argument so far. I've got to pick up my speed. Peter was probably picking up his pace at this point too. The Scriptures say the Messiah is going to raise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah. And so that's what verses 32 and 33 affirm. This Jesus raised up and of that, we are all witnesses being just a sidebar. It's not really a sidebar. Not only do the scriptures testify to the resurrection of Christ. This is one of the arguments later on Paul's going to use in 1 Corinthians. He's going to say this Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, he was raised up. And you know, what? there's about 500 people that are that witnessed it. And most of them are still alive to get today. It's not like, oh, yeah, Jesus Christ from the dead, but all those people who saw it, they've died, and we can't really go like corroborate the evidence. You can. They're there. We're all witnesses. And then verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Wow. We've come full circle. We started with the tongues and the chaos and what's going on. We go to Joel, and now Peter's saying, actually, Jesus is the one who poured out that Spirit. You guys hear what just happened here? Do you see the work of the Trinity here? Look, all three persons of the Trinity in verse 33. Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Father, you've got Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit. Who now pours out this Spirit? Jesus poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Here's the point. Jesus rose from the dead. He's exalted. He's at the right hand of God. What's it mean he's at the right hand of God? That refers, and it represents supreme power and authority. So he's at the right hand of God. That's also telling us something about the identity of Jesus. Like, it ought to raise some questions for us. Like, who, who can actually be at, at the right hand of God, in the presence of God? Who, who is holy enough to be there? Oh, yeah, Jesus. And it's because he is God. And now God is exercising his plan through Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is pouring out this spirit which you see and which you hear. You guys with me so far? Peter's not done that yet. Not done yet, though. He's got one more text. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is like the mic drop verse like where it's going to bring it together. This is one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in all of the New Testament. It's David, get it, David says this, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, who is David's Lord? Amen. So you've got somebody who's higher than David, and the Lord is saying to that person, sit at my right hand. Clearly, the disciples are looking back and they're saying, this was telling us to look forward to one who was to come, who would sit at the right hand of God. And so then we have the mic drop, like final purpose statement from Peter Who says this? Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He connects it all together. We end Joel. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is this Lord? This Lord is the Jesus who is also the Christ. Why is He Lord? Look at His life. Look at His death. Look at His resurrection. Look at the Scriptures that promise this. Oh, and hey, by the way, you crucified Him. As if to reinforce, there is a need for Repentance. All right. I gotta wrap up this fast. Here's what happens. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Can, this imagery here is talking about acute emotional distress. Imagine becoming aware that all of history was leading up to affirm that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ and you realizing you're the one that killed him. Instead of falling at your knees and worshiping and honoring him, you killed him. Hell, but by the way, this is, was part of the plan of God. <laughs> Let's not forget that part. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers. What should we do? Maybe you're here today. I know we've kind of been doing a lot of explaining, but here's where it gets personal. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what? I wasn't personally there at the crucifixion of Jesus. But I'm just as guilty. And so are you. Because what do we know about the cross of Christ? It it wasn't just a, a moral example. Jesus on the cross bore the weight of millions of sins. He That judgment that Joel talked about Jesus took that judgment, the judgment for sin. We are all sinners, and and as a result of our sin, from the things we do to our thoughts to our actions, we are accountable to a holy God, and we will all individually one day give an account for that. Peter's preaching a sermon. He's saying this. You're all accountable to this God, but there's good news. This is it. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words and And those are the other words I don't have time to share with you right now. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them and said, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to Jesus. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn. That's what repentance is. Turn from crucifying Jesus to falling on your face and on your knees and submitting to King Jesus. Turn from a hard heart to Jesus to say, Jesus, come and rule and reign in my life. Turn from, I love myself and I have a wonderful plan for my life. Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Who today needs to turn to Jesus to be saved? This is the offer. When you repent, when you turn, you can be forgiven. But if you don't repent, you will be left to face the judgment of God for yourself. And so as those 3,000 saw that there's a Savior, and He is the Holy Lord and Christ, the promised one, man, I'm just pleading with you, if you have not turned from your sin to come to Jesus, do it today. Like, why wait? I, I'll be explicit. I've been praying at least one person today says, I'm turning to Jesus and he's my king and Lord. Repent and you'll be forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This very spirit that has been poured out that you're witnessing, you can have those same blessings as you repent and come to Jesus Repent and be baptized. Peter links these really close. And as we continue to study Acts, we're going to see baptism is is almost always followed with this repentance. We see people repent. Hey, there's some water. What, What keeps me from getting baptized? And for time's sake, I don't have have time to jump into it today. Here's the deal. Peter doesn't unpack the theological relationship between repentance and water baptism. But when we look at rest of Scripture, what do we know about salvation? We know that salvation is through grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. It is not through works. And so, let me just clarify. Peter's not saying you've got to be baptized to be forgiven and to receive the Spirit. In in other words, water baptism. But the water baptism is is the symbol that corresponds to the reality. What happens when you repent? You are washed. Your sin is washed. You are clean. You are forgiven. The symbol is now go public with that. So it's... The the repentance is an inward work of God in us. The baptism is the going public and letting everybody know this is what God's done in my heart. He has cleansed me and Jesus is my king and I'm following him. The baptism doesn't make you saved. The baptism just represents what's going on here. So repent, you'll, you'll be forgiven, you'll receive the spirit and go public with that and be baptized. You know what else I've been praying? we got a baptism service next week. Some of you need to be baptized. And this, just to make extremely clear, isn't a suggestion, it's a command. Repent and be baptized. Part of this turning and changing is saying, all right, Jesus, whatever you want. Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. It's in his name now. And so the response today for some of you is, I need to turn and trust in Jesus. For others, you're saying, I've trusted in Jesus. I'm saying, well, why haven't you been baptized yet? And this baptism ought to be post-repentance. If you come to us at Redemption Hill, we're gonna say, hey, have you been baptized by immersion after repenting and placing faith in Christ? It It is the after going public of what's going on in the heart. You do that. You repent you be baptized. And he's saying, guys, this very spirit is available to all who are near and who are far off. Would you save yourself from this crooked generation and turn to Jesus today? You may be asking, okay, John, I'm there, man. What does this look like? An initial response would involve confessing your sin. God, you are holy God. I'm accountable to you. I'm a sinner. I deserve your righteous judgment and punishment. It is a, you just, you just cry out to God in prayer. Prayer doesn't save you. You just cry out to God. And you say, God, I see what you've done in Jesus. His life, his death, and his resurrection. There is nothing good in me, but Jesus is great. And I believe what you've done in him for me. Would you forgive me? You call upon him. You plead with him. As he's cutting your heart and working, you respond and say, God, here is my life. I'm yours. And then you just start praying. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And you follow him. You can respond right now. You can come talk to me afterwards. You can come talk to Pastor Tanner. You can just cry out to God right now and say, God, would you save me from my sin? Would you forgive me? And would you help me to follow you? Peter says, repent and you will be forgiven. This is the same offer to you. Salvation is available to everyone who responds to Jesus as the Lord, as the Christ Father. Would you melt our ice-cold hearts? Would you break our hearts? Would you cut our hearts with this truth? Would we have such emotional distress because of the sin that sent Jesus to the cross that's in us that we would respond with repentance and trusting in you? God, would you change us? Would you save us? We pray in Christ's name.